0: Welcome to Radio Tamboa, an outreach of ACFA, the Africa Center for Apologetics Research. ACFA equips God's people for the defense of the faith, biblical discernment, and cult evangelism. Let's begin today's message. The topic this evening will be about two prominent teachings that threaten the health of the church today, and that is hyper-grace and prosper the gospel teachings. But as we look at these teachings, I would like to begin by laying a foundation for us as we look to the scriptures, because the word of God is the starting point for anything. This is not just the wisdom of men, but going to the scriptures to find out God's will concerning everything in life. And so I would like to read from Jude verse 3 and 4, and then I will read from 2 Peter verse 2 and then help to summarize that foundation for our teaching today. From Jude 3 and 4, we read that, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in and noticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, and godly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality, and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. In this passage, we see Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, calling believers to stand firm for the Christian faith, to fight for it, to contend for it. And basically, in these two verses, Jude tells us three important things. Number one, he says there is only one faith, which has once for all been delivered to the saints. And any attempt to add to this faith or subtract from it or tamper with it in any way ultimately is to result in false teaching. Number two, he tells us that we have a divine mandate to contend for the faith or to defend it. And why do we defend the Christian faith? Because number three, which he tells us in verse four, he says that certain people have crept in and noticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. And these ungodly people, one of the things that they do is that they pervert the grace of God. They distort it, they deny it, they doubt it, they seek to destroy it in whatever way they can. And because of the presence of these false teachers who seek to pervert the grace of God, Jude calls us to honestly stand firm for this faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And then we have another passage from Second Peter chapter 2, from verses 1 up to 3. It says that, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. False prophets, false teachers coming in secretly, motivated by greed and false words, Seeking to take God's people away from true biblical teaching to destructive heresies. As we look at these two passages, there are a number of observations that we pick out. Number one is that both passages call believers to watch out for false teachers and their teachings. Both passages invite believers to stand firm for their faith and to defend it from these spiritual caravans. Number three is that both passages show that these false teachers come in secretly and are usually not always obvious. You may wonder why both passages have used the word secretly. It is because these people have an intention of creeping in among believers without the awareness of the believers. In other words, they may look Christian, they may sound Christian, They may sing Christian songs, but ultimately they have an agenda. And that is to slowly but surely distort the faith as we have received it from the apostles and the New Testament. Number four is that these teachers look and sound biblical and are actually in most cases operating within the church. So when we think about false teachers, we should not just look outside the church out there and think these people are strangers. In most cases, they are part of us. They are involved in the ministries of the church. Most of the time, they actually speak things that are true, but they distort that truth into a counterfeit. Lastly is that while passage number one talks about a perversion of God's grace, passage number two talks about the greed of false teachers. And if you bring these two together, perversion of God's grace, and the greed of false teachers, you actually realize that they bring out our topic for this, for this evening. Hypergrace and the prosperity gospel, which we are going to look at in a moment. But before we do even look at these teachings, hypergrace and prosperity gospel, why is it important that we address these subjects at a time like this? Again, a number of observations. Number one is that both teachings sound Christian and biblical, but are not. And something that closely resembles the original can very easily confuse or even deceive many. Number two, you will notice that most of their teachings are built on biblical teaching, but which teaching has been taken out of context by misinterpreting Bible verses. In most cases, there is a mixture of truth and error, and in a secretive way, that if you do not have biblical discernment, you may actually think they are fine. Number three is that both of these teachings have the ability to infiltrate any church without notice, especially since they are teachings and not institutions. If they were denominations or some groups that have an address, one could easily identify them and stay away from them. But you notice that when we talk about hyper-grace or prosperity gospel, we are not talking about religions or fellowships or designated groups. We are talking about certain teachings that are not necessarily institutions. And because they are teachings, they can easily be believed by anybody in spite of which church they go to. And that's why my number four is that a Christian can hold both to these two teachings without necessarily leaving his traditional church, I can tell you without fear or favor that as I speak, there are people in the Anglican church in Ancoli Diocese, whether innocently or not, sincerely or not, they subscribe to the teachings of hyper-grace and prosperity gospel while they are still Anglican. In other words, they are Anglican by membership but hyper-grace and prosperity gospel by theology. There is a chance that many may not even know that actually this is the case, which is why I believe it is very important for us to address this subject so that many can know where they stand and hopefully God can give us the grace to repent if there is need or if we find ourselves in any of these camps. So let's begin with hyper-grace. And when we talk about hyper-grace, it is important that we understand that we address this topic against the background of two extremes. So you have the extreme of the law, which we call legalism, and you have the extreme of a wrong version of grace that we are calling hyper-grace. So we have some Christians who believe that for one to be right with God, they must please God by their works, by their good moral behavior, by the keeping of the Ten Commandments, and behaving nicely, and they hope that in their personal efforts, they can actually please God. And that extreme is not biblical either. As we look through the scriptures, we recognize that that is what the Old Testament was about, that the Old Testament had the commandments, had the sacrifices, had the temple observances and rituals, but all these in and of themselves would not bring a person to salvation. What they communicated is that they set a standard for what godliness looks like. And they pointed the Old Testament people to the coming of the Messiah who alone would serve them. So to trust in the keeping of the law and the commandments for salvation is to be, to be in error and actually you will not arrive at salvation. So you have Christians who must demonstrate their devotion to God through obedience. Yet the scriptures tell us that the righteous will live by faith, for Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. In other words, salvation is not in the obedience to the law, but in placing one's faith and trust in Christ Jesus alone for our salvation. And then we have extreme number two that we have called hyper-grace, where we are taught that God isn't really concerned about holiness and obedience after we have been saved. What these teachers are saying in hyper Grace teaching is that once you have trusted Christ as your personal savior and Lord, you no longer need to worry or fear anything. You no longer have to work hard at living a life of obedience, being a righteous Christian, in whom the fruit of the Holy Spirit is made manifest. And it is this second extreme especially that we would like to draw our attention to. But I wanted to make sure that while we address hypergrace, we don't have some people among us thinking that since hypergrace is not biblical, then we need to go back to the law because that would be another error in another different direction. So when we think about hypergrace, we need to lay some foundations again. Because we know that based on biblical teaching, salvation comes through God's grace in Christ Jesus, that God forgives all sin when a person comes to Christ. And by all sin, I mean he forgives past sin, present sin, future sin, and any sin, even that that is only in the mind. And most hyper-grace teachers will actually agree with this teaching that God has totally dealt with our sin. Jesus will never die again to provide sacrifice for our sins. He died once for all, and through his death and resurrection, sinners become saints, and forgiven people find forgiveness. And that much is true. Now, the problem with hyper-grace teaching comes in at the application of this biblical truth. When we know that our sins have been forgiven, the question is, how then should we live? Do we live in obedience and honor of Christ who has saved us by never going back to those very things he saved us from? Or do we now actually sin all the more, believing that after all, our sins are already taken care of? Now, hyper-grace people will overemphasize grace at the expense of obedience and repentance. They will teach you that you no longer need to obey the scriptures, you no longer need to obey the law, you no longer need to repent, and even when you have sinned, confession is not necessary because Jesus paid it all. So according to them, God only sees Christians as holy and righteous, and he does not have any requirement on them on how they live their lives. So in other words, once saved by grace, you can do whatever you want because the grace that has saved you will continue keeping you. Let me give you a quotation from one of the proponents of this kind of teaching. If you are looking on the screen, this man is a Korean man called Oksu Park, the leader of Good News Mission, an aggressive missionary cult, that is seeking to actually take over educational institutions in Uganda through a program that they have called Mind Education Program. It is already in most public universities in the country. They come with a curriculum on Mind Education, but what really they are teaching you is the theology of good news mission, one of which is that you no longer need to walk in obedience as a believer because grace is enough. Oksu Park says... That we should not try to do good or try to stop sinning. If the heart of Jesus dwells in us, that heart will lead us to do good. Allow us to live an obedient life to the Lord and give us great glory and increase our joy. So believers should not put any effort in righteous living because after all, if Jesus is in us, he will make us good without our personal effort. Then we have Apostle Grace, whom I am sure most of you are already familiar with, the leader of Faneru. And this is what he says concerning the life of a believer. That he says that the question is, who is born of God? What in you is born of God? Your spirit is born of God. If your spirit is born of God, how can your spirit sin? When people question this, that is when you realize the spirit of error. What Apostle Grace Lubega is saying is that there is a division between the spirit and the body and Christ has only died for your spirit, which has become born again. So whatever you do in the body doesn't really matter because your spirit is already saved and the spirit does not sin. At the end of the day, God will hold you okay because your spirit does not sin regardless of anything else you have done in your body. And this certainly could not be farther from the truth. One of the major verses that they usually use in hyper-grace teachings is coming from 1 John 3 and 9, which says that whoever is born of God does not commit sin. Now, when you read a verse like this, it can be very troubling because it seems to be straight to the point that if you are a believer, you no longer sin, and therefore there is no need for repentance and confession of sin. When the Apostle John was writing to the believers, he was addressing habitual sin, people who make a practice or who are in a habit of consistently, persistently living a certain life of sin while continuing to claim that Jesus is Lord of their lives. And John is saying that if you are a believer who continues that kind of practice, what you are showing is that you are not born of God in the first place. Because people born of God, while they may sin from time and again, they are always aware of their sin. They are convicted of the Holy Spirit. They are eager to fall on their knees in repentance and to confess their unrighteousness before God, the only one who can make them clean. Believers sin. The question is, when they sin, what do they do? Do they ignore it because grace has come? Or do they get on their knees and repent to the Lord and plead for his mercy and his forgiveness? Now, here is Titus chapter 2. I would like to take a few minutes to look at this passage very carefully. And you hear what the Apostle Paul says concerning a true biblical version of grace. In verse 11, he talks about the past. He says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. That God's grace has already appeared and it has made salvation possible for all people. And by all people, he means different categories because in Acts in chapter two, he's been talking about slaves and masters women and men, older women and younger women. And so he's thinking about all these categories of people. And he says, no matter who they are or their background, God's grace has appeared and it makes salvation possible for sinners who will believe. But number two, he addresses the present time. From verses 12, he talks about the ongoing work of grace in the believer's life. Once God's grace has taken care of your sins, and now you who were once a prodigal has become a child of God, how then should you live? In verse 12, he says that the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That the grace of God which saved us without us paying anything, without us becoming good, now calls us and enables us to be those good people for which it saved us. It calls us to renounce anything ungodly towards God, to renounce any worldly person and unrighteousness with one another, to live a kind of life that is self-controlled, that is upright, that is godly in this present age. That once a Christian, you no longer want to live the kind of life you once lived, you now want to live a life that is in honor and awe of God who has called you. If you are a Christian who takes the grace of God for granted, and you think it's a license for you to do anything and never repent because you are saved by grace, then from this passage, you have clearly not understood God's grace. Because the grace that canceled your record of past sins now calls you to live a new life in Christ, a life characterized by godliness, by purity, by self-control, and generally by the fruit of the Holy Spirit, as we find it in Galatians. This same grace not only keeps us in the present age, but it prepares us for the future to come. See what he says in verses 13, that as we live godly and right lives, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus. That as believers, we have not been saved by grace just to enjoy life on earth. We've been saved for a purpose. We've been saved so that we can be prepared for the glorious return of our master and our savior, Jesus. And knowing that we wait for a man who died for us, for a savior who gave his life for our well-being, the question is then how should we live? Do we live in ways that discredit his work on the cross? Or do we live in ways that show that his death for us was worthy and that Christ's death and resurrection actually was the reason for our purity and our holiness. Therefore, we want to live our lives no longer for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again. When you understand God's grace, you want to live the rest of your life in honor of his name, and not to take God's grace for granted. You no longer want to do those things that put Christ on the cross. And when you find that you have done them, You quickly fall on your knees and cry out to God for mercy so that his grace would be evident in your life again. You want to know a man who is saved by grace? He's a man who beats his chest every day in repentance and confession of sin and never ever wants to live that kind of life that once held him captive. A man who lives a life of glorying in the cross of Christ. In celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, a man who honestly and eagerly waits for the glorious return of Christ and every day lives in preparation for that day. So that when his master Jesus appears, he will have no reason to be ashamed. If it were not for time, there would be certainly much more that I would have loved to say about grace. But we have two topics yet in a space of about 35 minutes. So allow me to go on and introduce the prosperity gospel, provide a few definitions, and then give some brief application. When we talk about the prosperity gospel, what are we talking about? In brief, we are saying that this is a teaching that is calling believers and in telling believers that God wants believers to have prosperity. And by prosperity, they are thinking of health and wealth. The teaching says that believers have a right to be rich, have a right never to be sick, because Christ in his death has purchased prosperity for them, which involves good health and an abundance of wealth. Listen again to what Apostle Grace says. He's not only a preacher of grace, but he's also an advocate of the prosperity gospel. He says that God will never set you on a path of poverty, of deprivation, or of scarcity. Every instruction that comes from God is an instruction on the path and ways of profit. In other words, for him to be a Christian simply equals to never have problems, to always have an abundance in terms of material needs. And if you ever find yourself in a state of poverty, you know that, you are, that God is not with you. Because God will never set you on a path of poverty. So for a man like Apostle Grace to be Christian simply means to be rich. But then we have another one here. That for believers to get this prosperity, they must believe in their hearts. They must speak their belief. And they must confess that belief. And that faith that involves belief and confession is what guarantees prosperity. We have one of the prominent African televangelists, David Oyedepo, who is the pastor of Winner's Chapel, perhaps ranked the third richest pastor in the world today. And this is what he says. If you believe, then you must express your faith by saying what you believe. By speaking what you believe, you are releasing potent spiritual substance into the atmosphere to accomplish the spiritual things that you have settled in your heart. So for Depot, if you really want to get what you want, and that means health and wealth, you need to speak and you need to express your faith by speaking out with your mouth. And the power of your confession is what gets you the things that you really need. And then we have Andrew Womack. Andrew Womack is the leader of Callis Bible College. He's also a proponent of hyper teaching as well as prosperity gospel. And listen to what he says, that God does not give us wealth. He has given us power and the authority to use that power. And it is not up to you praying and asking God to give you money. Start releasing the things of God through you, using your authority as a believer. According to Andrew Womack, every believer has the authority to decide whatever they want to happen in their lives. They no longer need to pray to God. They just need to use that power and authority and decree anything. I am sure you have heard of people who go around declaring, claiming people's cars and plots of land, and they believe that when they confess and claim, within them is the power to actually make those things happen. They are following this kind of theology from Andrew Womack of Caris Bible College. One of the major verses that prosperity gospel preachers will use is study John 1.2. Now, this is just one of the many examples. I can assure you there are many Bible verses that prosperity gospel teachers use, that they twist to their own gain, and the application is not always what the Bible intended to say. So, 3 John verse 2 says, That, Beloved, I wish above all things that you may prosper, and be in health even as your soul prospers. And according to this verse, they believe that it is every believer's right. If you are a Christian, you must prosper and you must be in good health. Riches and health are your right simply because the, the scripture says so according to Third John. But if you think for a moment, what is is Third John really about? Does it guarantee that believers must be prosperous and must never fall sick? Take a look at verse 1. The elder unto the well beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. So, for starters, we understand that this verse is addressed to a person, an individual Christian Gaius, perhaps who was in one of the congregations that would have received John's letter. And John is addressing this individual Christian and he prays for him. You may have noted that the word used here is the word I wish above all things. And then in the second line, he says that you may prosper. This is not a command. This is not a decree. This is not a prophecy from God. It is simply a way of John wishing well, his beloved brother in Christ, that as his soul is prospering, his physical body would also prosper in that way. You could call it a prayer. In fact, if you go to first century Christianity, you will realize that this was a standard greeting. This is how brothers and sisters would greet one another by wishing well to each other and pronouncing God's blessing on one another as believers. It is not a blanket statement for riches, neither is it a guarantee for good health. But prosperity preachers will pick this verse and use it as a guarantee that every believer should be rich and must never fall sick. We should also remember as we look at some of these verses that while prosperity gospel preachers pick out verses that seem to suggest the teachings they have desired, we have a whole lot of other biblical verses that warn us of the danger of prosperity, that warn us of the desire to be rich, and some of these verses not only warn us but they spell out serious consequences for those who live their lives in the pursuit of money instead of their savior, Jesus Christ. Look at First Timothy chapter 6. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. We may want to take a moment and reflect on that verse so far. Verse 10 says that for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That out of a desire for the material well-being of this world, many have sacrificed the eternal at the altar of the immediate Many have come into the Christian faith, not for the sake and honor of Christ who died for them, but for the sake of material riches that has been promised by prosperity gospel preachers. And Paul gives a stern warning to young Timothy that those who desire to be rich had better be very careful. Those who put the goal of the Christian life on money and how to get it had better watch out. For many who have done so have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many, many pangs. So what is Paul's advice to the contrary? From verses 11, he says, but you, O man of God, this is what you are supposed to do. Instead of chasing after the things of this world that pass away, you can chase much better things that you have been called for as a Christian. And what are those things? Paul says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. That as believers, we are called to pursue the things of heaven. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, gentleness. And it is that to, to that end that Christ gave up his life. That we who were Those of the temporary passing away things of this world might for the first time be released into the freedom of Christ as sons of God and therefore begin to hunger for the things of God, the things that pertain to eternal life and not just to the temporary comforts of this life. Now you may be wondering, if these are the warnings that the Bible gives, Why is it that so many people are enticed to join the prosperity gospel teaching churches or fellowships or gatherings, wherever they are? What are some of those reasons as to why people continue to walk away from biblical teaching in the pursuit of the false prosperity gospel and hyper-grace? There are a couple of things that I would like to share with you. Number one is that most of these churches are appealing They have a modern touch to their presentation of services. They have exciting and entertaining services that many people would love to go for instead of the gentle, sober worship of the traditional churches. We will notice that some of these groups are reinforced by a broader cultural emphasis on easy solutions. They promise instant gratification. They promised instant riches and healing in the here and now, immediately at the expense of the biblical call to perseverance and to endurance. You will notice that some of these people use richly blessed objects and substances which resemble those that are found in African traditional religions. And because a number of us have been raised in African traditional thinking, there are some connections and relationships such that when we hear some of these preachers Using the very same things that are found in our culture, we easily, we easily find the connection, we easily warm up to whatever it is that they are selling. But number four, you will notice that most of these preachers actually have what we call a decentralized approach to worship. There are no terms and conditions. You can come in and walk out anytime you want. They do not require you to be a member of their church necessarily. If you want to be a pastor, you can wake up in the morning and be a pastor. And by evening, you will be one of the prominent pastors. You do not need to go through any theological training. So it is come in easy and do whatever you want. And with such a kind of license, you can see why many will excitedly come in because there is no accountability for whatever they do. But number five is that this kind of teaching, and this is very important for us, that it easily infiltrates traditional churches and fellowships. And it does so especially in traditional churches where biblical teaching and doctrinal knowledge are weak, where there is a serious lack of discipleship or discipleship is not prioritized, where people are bored with routine and traditional rituals, places where leadership does not warn about the danger of spiritual deception to their members and places where church leaders who want to expose these kinds of teaching lack the confidence or an effective approach to doing so when you have a church where discipleship is weak biblical teaching and doctrine are not emphasized people are bored with routine and leadership does not warn its members of the dangers of the spiritual deception. And the church leaders are not equipped to address these false teachings. You can see why prosperity gospel and hyper Grace will be appealing to many and will thrive at a very fast rate and taking many captive. So quickly, what can we do? How do we respond if one of our weaknesses as a church is the lack of intentional discipleship, then we need to do it. Because only those who are grounded in biblical truth can discern error from falsehood. If you read Hebrews 5.14, the writer to the Hebrews says that solid food is for the mature. Those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. That people who have been grounded in God's truth and are growing in God's grace, we will find it easy to guard their faith because they can easily tell the difference between what is good and what is evil. When people cannot discern the danger, they cannot defend their faith from it. Number two is that we look at Ephesians chapter four verse fourteen, where the apostle Paul says that so that we are no longer to be children tossed to and flow by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Paul has been talking about the the gifts that God has given the church, and the purpose of those gifts being to bring the church to unity and maturity of the members. And he says that when these gifts are used properly, and people are unified and are mature in the faith, they will no longer be carried back and forth by the waves of every wind of doctrine. God's people that are grounded in truth and well-discipled will easily discern the danger and therefore defend their faith. We must remember to examine everything we hear. In Acts chapter 17, we have that wonderful example of the Berean Jews who were more noble than those at Thessalonica. We are told that they had poor preach But they examined the scriptures daily to make sure that what Paul was saying was actually coming from the scriptures. We need to challenge our church members to be diligent in the study of scriptures. That they will not just listen to anybody because he said that Jesus sent him. Because the prophet says that says the Lord does not mean the Lord has necessarily sent him. And how do we know that? We hear what they are preaching, we come to the scriptures, we compare their teaching with what the scripture says, and if they contradict the scriptures, we uphold biblical teaching. If they are consistent with the scriptures, then we receive them as faithful preachers. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 22, Paul tells the Thessalonian believers to test before they trust. He says that do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good and obtain from every form of evil. Believers who learn to test, believers who are not willing to just take something because it sounded biblical or somebody began it by saying the Bible says, are the kind who will be discerning, the kind who will be on guard, the kind who will easily detect the error and therefore quickly affirm what they believe. When the Church of Christ goes back to building firm foundations of biblical discipleship for its members, the church will raise a generation of believers who know what they believe, why they believe what they believe, and how they can able courageously yet compassionately defend it from those who advocate for error. And the best way to really address hypergress and false teaching is to teach the church biblical truth, what the Bible really teaches. Number two, it is to help God's people to learn to discern, to tell the differences between truth and error, between right and wrong, and sometimes the differences between what is right and what is almost right. And God's people who can differentiate between truth and error and know the truth very well for themselves will not only identify error, but we will confidently respond to it in a way that God is the church of God and grows God's people in the Christian faith. To learn more about the Africa Center for Apologetics Research, visit us at africanapologetics.org.